I've gotten something like 100 questions. I've got so many. There's no way we're going to be able to get through, uh, through all of them. But I'll try to like, deal with them maybe in, in clusters a little bit. So there was a bunch of questions about um, how do you compare the importance of different species, which Peter and I discussed ahead of time. Is uh, Peter Singer has not solved the, you know, all questions around consciousness and exactly what causes consciousness. But do, you want to, do you want to comment on that? <laughs> No, I so, told uh, Rob when we were chatting beforehand that uh, you know I think the most difficult question that's raised by the kinds of things that I was talking about tonight would be if someone were to say, well, how do you compare you know the suffering of say I showed the hens in the cages and I showed the sows in the sow stalls um, and I showed the, ch- the 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 chickens that are being raised for meat. Um, how would you compare the suffering? You know, does each one of those chickens suffer just as much as the sow? Um, does the sow suffer more? You know, generally, pigs are thought to be more intelligent in various ways than chickens. Um, does that relate to the their capacity to suffer? Um, and how? And then, of course, you could ask the same question comparing human suffering and and the suffering of non-human animals. I, I so that's why that word "similar" is in the principle of equal consideration of interests, because I'm not making the claim that the interests of uh, various different species, including our own, are always the same. In fact, obviously they're not. You know, you, you must have some interest in hearing about this topic or you wouldn't have come along tonight. Um, chickens and pigs have no interest in listening to talks like this. They, they, they wouldn't work out what's going on. So, so we, we clearly have... Maybe some of you don't either. You, you never know. Um, um, so, yeah, you, you, those are incredibly difficult sorts of questions. Um, and I, I, know, I think they're so difficult that very little work has really been done on it. Um, brief conversations I've had, people would talk, say, well, you could talk about brain size maybe, but then we know brain size varies with body size. So then they say, well, you could talk about ratio of brain size to body size. Um, but then, you know, there's also that, that may not relate to capacity to suffer. There may be other things that are going on. Um, Birds, for example, have quite small brains, but there have been studies on uh, crows and ravens and jays that show that they are very good at problem solving, quite comparable to, to primates. Um, maybe their brains had to be small because they need to be able to fly and you can't carry big heavy brains around um, if you're flying. So maybe they've somehow evolved you know, super, super light, compact brains. Um, it's really hard to say. So, I've you know. heard of brains. <laughs> Yeah, this expression bird brain is really bad, by the way. I think it's really, really, really misleading in that respect. Um, so, no, I, I think that's, you know, uh, following up what uh, Ava just said about we need more research. Well, this is a difficult area where um, it's, it really would be great if we could find out more about how to make these comparisons. Okay. Sticking with the animal theme, um, Peter Singer, first of all, you look great. It's this person text. But secondly... <laughs> if, <laughs> <laughs> They're not asking if you're I'm single. Glad, I'm glad I'm not female because this would have been a very sexist <laughs> comment if I were. <laughs> well, all right, secondly, so on a different topic, if animals were unable to feel pain, happiness, etc., would your perspective on their treatment be changed? Just deal with that quickly, horribly? Uh, completely, yes. I mean, if they were really unable to feel pain, or, you know, if, essentially, in other words, if they were like plants, as I believe plants to be, um, then we could still talk about equal consideration for similar interests, but there just wouldn't be any interests that were in any way similar. So there wouldn't really be anything much to say about that. Yeah. Yeah, there was a 
a whole lot of questions on um, what if um, the welfare of farm animals is good? What if they're having a good time? Do you want to comment on that? <laughs> I think it speaks for itself, maybe. But uh. Yeah. Um, look, there's, there's actually quite a... There is a decent scientific literature now, um, which is built up over the period when I started looking at this in the 1970s. There was one report from something called the Bramble Committee in the UK. There was very little else... Um, but now there's a really serious body of scientific research of people who understand animal behaviour, who understand signs of stress, um, and you can look at that both behaviourally or you can measure stress uh, hormones and so on. Um, I don't think there's much doubt that the animals in the pictures that I showed you um, are suffering, that, that their lives are negative, and that in that sense it would be better if they were not having to go through that at all. What? But um, so if there was a farm where animals were having an amazing time, some kind of animal fantasy land. Yeah, oh, well, it may not be a complete fantasy land. There are, you know, basically small, not very commercial operations where I think animals are well looked after. So um, it's not impossible to, to rear animals so that they're well looked after um, and then, you know, kill them humanely. Best kill them on the farm if you can, but, um, uh, you know... It, it can be done. So uh, that, that, that certainly makes a big difference, yeah. Um, I'm not sure if I... There's a different question or I misunderstood the previous yeah. one, but um, if animals are having good lives, then clearly what, the only thing that's wrong with them is, is that they're being killed prematurely. Um, and that raises a debate about, well, even if they're having short but good lives, is that better than them not having any lives at all? which would be the case if they were not being reared for food. Um, you know, that's, that's an interesting question on which there's now, again, uh, a, a growing, this time, philosophical literature rather than scientific literature. Um, let me just say my view is I wouldn't see it, I wouldn't see stopping this as a big priority in the way I do now because I think there's such a lot of suffering. I think trying to stop the suffering we inflict on on farmed animals is a very high priority. If they're having good lives but are being killed... I don't think I'd see it in the same way. Because, yeah, sticking with the animal questions, um, in your essay, All Animals Are Equal, you argue that the mere fact of being human is not morally relevant when considering equality. Yet, as you've quite rightly pointed out, most people continue to be speciesist, the vast majority without second thought. What do you think is the single biggest reason people continue to hold discriminatory views and are you optimistic about change in the future? Um, If I just have to pick out one, I think it's the fact that most people do eat meat, that they've grown up eating meat, they're used to eating meat, they don't, they're not really open to the idea of changing their diet. Obviously, you know, some, fortunately, significant numbers of people are, but if we're talking about the majority of people, uh, I think they're, they're not really, and therefore they're not really able to look um, what happens to animals uh, in an open and honest way. Uh, and, and the best hope of change for that particular group, therefore, is the development of plant-based alternatives, which we're starting to see now. Uh, we're starting to see a much better range of meat substitutes. And you know, those of you who've been vegan or vegetarian for many years will perhaps say, well, why do we need meat substitutes? You know, can't people think that all of these plant-based, you know, for eating the plants, the vegetables and grains directly is terrific? Um, yes, but clearly for a lot of people, they don't want to shift their diet. And if you can give them something that is plant-based and tastes to them just like the chicken that they buy in the supermarket, that can be a solution to the problems I was talking about. Okay, there was a couple of questions, uh, moving, moving uh, away from animals for a bit. Um, there were a couple of questions about the sustainable development goals and how they relate to the principles of effective altruism and whether they're well-designed and things like that. 
Did anyone have a comment on the sustainable development goals? The successors to the Millennium, millennium Development Goals? Um, just, just a short comment. I mean, I think that the goals are ambitious. I think that's fantastic. Um, I do think that there's a challenge in setting 169 goals that you might just overwhelm people and they might really not make progress on any of them. And so there is, you know, obviously people who think that the Millennium Development Goals, which were focusing on 18 goals, was something that was was manageable um, and 169 goals may be um, stretching stretching the boundaries a little bit too far. But I do think there's, there is some sense in putting together a package of a, a vision <laughs> of where you might want to be. Um, but I do, I do think that there's probably going to be a real challenge in actually making progress against all of those, perhaps because it's such an overwhelming set. To be honest, all I care about is, is whether anyone said that I looked, looked good. <laughs> <laughs> I'll uh, send through your opinions, guys. Um, all right. <laughs> there were, okay, there are a couple of questions about uh, population. So, for one... Is it counterintuitive to endorse a charity aiming to uh, reduce the number of humans, say, through family planning, while also endorsing a charity aiming at increasing the, num- the number of humans uh, by saving their lives, for example, distributing bed nets? Does anyone want to tackle that? There's a whole lot of, there were a couple of questions about, you know, is it bad to save lives because it would be bad if the pop- if, uh, human population was higher? So, no? I guess P- Peter could go. You've probably heard this one before, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, firstly, um, there are some things that you can do to reduce poverty that are also going to reduce uh, fertility. Um, and there are studies. Now, I might be corrected that there are studies actually spread across the spectrum. <laughs> but my reading of studies on educating girls, for example, is that their fertility rate tends to drop. So you educate girls, you give them better economic opportunities and empower them, and also you contribute to reducing uh, population issues. You can also, of course, directly help by uh, helping the 220 million women who would like to have access to contraception but don't to get it. Um, and you know, on the website of The Life You Can Save, lifeyoucansave.org, you can find uh, PSI, Population Services International, which is an American organisation, American-based, that is doing that. So you can do those things. Um, should you also try to do it by letting kids die from malaria, for example, or from uh, lack of you know, diarrhoea, lack of sanitation and so on? No, I don't, I don't think uh, we have to do that. I think what we have to do is to try to give people more security, in fact, in the number that their children will live. And again, there's some evidence that uh, that will reduce the total number of children that they have once they have some assurance that some of their children will survive to look after them when they get older. That may vary again. That that may well vary culturally in different places. But um, I think it's worth doing. I think it's worth trying to generally raise the standard of living, raise education, raise economic opportunities, because in uh, quite a large number of countries that has led to a reduction in fertility. Mm. Yes. Um, so for, for, if people don't agree um, with that answer, it is uh, actually possible to go to the developing world and get malaria yourself if you think it's uh, useful for people to uh, <laughs> die of malaria. So it's... Uh, <laughs> so, so I don't mean to be quite that snide. But, um, so following on from the issues about uh, fertility, 
um, and women's education and women's health. Did uh, a couple of questions about whether focusing on women in particular was likely to be more effective or among the most effective things you could do to reduce poverty. Um, did anyone have a comment on that? Well, I guess there is an argument that um, historically the uh, women have been left out of the labor force in many places. There's a lot of potential gains for them. Um, to be honest, it's a bit unclear to me. I wouldn't personally put it probably at the very, very top um, of the list. Uh, it's it's complicated. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is going to sound terrible. But yes, it really depends on the situation. I understand where that's coming from, for sure. Um, and it's something that lots of people have expressed interest in and makes sense. Um, but uh, we're, I guess we're trying to talk about like the most, most effective here. So it's hard for me to say that. But maybe you beg to differ. Yeah, uh, not differ so much. But I think that if you look across a range of different indicators, often, you know, and I go back to your list of the things that we should focus on first, you know, the people who are the poorest and most marginalised, often women are in that group. Um, and also if you think about the, the group that can have um, a, a big impact, I mean, women are often the the people sort of who have the most direct influence on their families as well. So, you know, there is evidence that if you can, you know, a, a, approach the women and, and change them, you actually can have a broader impact. You know, so, for example, a, a healthcare intervention, which might be about behaviour change, um, if you educate the women, you can actually impact the whole family. So I think there is a trickle-down effect that it's really important. Um, thinking about eye health in particular, just obviously something I'm, I'm familiar with, um, you know, two-thirds of the world's blind are women. Um, three-quarters of the people in the world with trachoma, an infection that causes um, also causes blindness. It turns the sort of eyelashes in and they scratch your eyes and so on. Again, that's, that's a, that is a, a, a condition of poverty and three-quarters of those, the people who have that are, are women. So I think that in addressing, you know, other issues like healthcare issues, in this case eye care, you have to, you have to address women to actually tackle that issue. Just one last thing on that, actually, that I was reminded of as you were talking. Um, so there, there has been some work, uh, you remember a paper with a very splashy title saying, uh, girls education, nothing else matters, um, that this is, has the potential to really change a lot of things. I guess I would also, um, I, I guess my sort of ambivalence here is it really, I can think of some cases where you've got a labor market that is not going to let the women in, even if they are educated, even if they do have the skills. Um, you can have training programs where you're getting um, women to be very empowered, but then they're actually at higher risk in their communities, potentially. Um, and uh, there is some evidence also that, you know, d uh, domestic violence will actually increase as a, you know, a result of some sometime, some kind of the kinds of interventions that are targeting women's empowerment, sadly. Um, so it's a little bit tricky. I mean, definitely it's an area where for sure they're amongst the most disadvantaged in some cases, but um, the way that one goes about it would probably be very important. All right, I've got one for you, Eva. Um You've like looked at all these impact uh, assessments for different projects. She never answers this question when I ask it, but I'm going to ask again. So you've looked at all these different impact assessments. If you had to donate to a particular intervention, uh, what would it be? You've asked me this question before, I know. Rob. I was anticipating I know, it. But you always evade. I want to hear an answer. I have an answer for you this time. Excellent. That's good. It's the first time. Um, 
You know, I think as I was, yeah, so as uh, you, you can tell, we, we've been uh, <laughs> having this conversation and I've never been able to give an answer. And I've, as the more I thought about it, um, the more I think that actually that does suggest to me that further research is actually the way that I would go, actually. Um, it, it makes it sound a little bit sad, but I, I guess given that there could be interventions out there that are actually much more effective than even the ones that right now we're talking about. You know, I think effective altruists, there's some general consensus, quote-unquote, of deworming, of unconditional cash transfers, what have you. Well, there could be other things that we're not even thinking about that aren't even on the table because we aren't even doing great... We don't have that research there yet. So um, that's, I guess, where I would stand now. Um, I'm intrigued. Can you say a little bit more about what kind of things you would like to see out there being being researched into their effectiveness? Um, so one area that is uh, there's not super much on is uh, people keep on having this question of, well, what if I want to... Um, what about supporting um, a party politically or trying to get some political changes? What, what, what is the role for... Um, that I guess going back to to Rob's thing of the one in twenty thousand chance of swaying a, an election or what have one have you there's there's not very much on that there's very little work still on um, animal advocacy research is growing but it's very small um, still um, so yeah I think there's still some some holes I think the the main problem is that we've been focusing a lot in development on these RCTs um, which are great which I run myself sometimes, but um, miss the macro picture. Um, and we're focusing on often charities and often that might not particularly scale well as, as well. There is an issue of, you know, sometimes these smaller impact evaluations of a small program uh, will find large effects. And then if you actually try to scale up that program, it fails miserably. Um, so there's some room in there as well. Sorry, that's a little bit of meandering answer, but <laughs> there are several er areas, I guess, I would like to see more. I just saw your list of, um, of things that cause cancer and decided I was going to invest in wine and tomatoes. They seem like good options. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, slightly different area. Uh, where would the panel rank the prevention of human extinction as an altruistic goal? Uh, the risk is low, but the repercussions would include a very large number of future lives. Peter, do you want to start? So, uh, Thanks a lot. Pro bro. or anti-human extinction? So, <laughs> so, another thing you can go and voluntarily do if you want. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose that's a question given that I've been talking about animal advocacy and if you could only extinguish, uh, make humans extinct and leave the rest of the species, you know, some people might think they might be better off, but then get, that gets into the question about whether there's a lot of suffering in wild animals anyway, which is another complicated issue. Um, so I'm, I'm against human extinction. I'm somewhat of a... <laughs> you'll be surprised to hear. I'm, so, I'm somewhat yeah. of an optimist about, firstly, you know, the quality of life, that our quality of life, unlike those of those chickens, is on the whole positive. Yeah. Um, and secondly, that it's likely to get better if we survive the next century or two. So if we can avoid some of the risks now, I think that we'll gradually, you know, get smarter, wiser, certainly technologically more adept... Um, and we'll be able to give everybody uh, around a high quality of life. Yeah. So I think, and that, but your question, of course, was a little more difficult than that. Your question was, is uh, how, did, how is it a priority? Yes. So, so the risks are fairly low, but nevertheless, 
it's a big thing, so a small risk of a big disaster is worth trying to reduce even further. Uh, you do have to ask how big a disaster is it exactly when, we, when we're getting into you know, reducing small risks further. And that's another difficult question because some people, when you talk about human extinction, say, well, that would be the loss of, let's say, if it happened tomorrow, 7.6 billion human deaths. Okay? That's a bad thing. But other people say, no, wait a minute. It's not just that. It's all of the lives that will not come into existence because the species has come into existence, has, has gone extinct. So for millions or possibly even billions of years, there will be, if we don't become extinct, billions, perhaps many billions, because perhaps we'll colonise other planets eventually, um, of lives. And if I'm right in thinking that they are going to be lives of good quality, um, then you might think that that's a huge loss as well. All of these vast number of lives that cannot be lived. Other people say, well, wait a minute. They're not missing out on anything. They, they, they're not even going to exist. So it doesn't really matter. You know, I'm concerned about really existing concrete people, not merely possible ones. And that's a fairly deep philosophical divide that it's actually quite hard to move people on once you raise that issue. Yeah, I'm going to join Peter in taking the very brave stance that it would be bad if I and everyone here and all the things that we loved were destroyed. So, yeah, I think uh, <laughs> I, um, I actually rate existential risks pretty highly, uh, probably above uh, most other causes, in, in particular because, they're, for, because I buy this idea that if humanity goes extinct, it's like very bad that we lose out on all of the potential human flourishing that would happen in the rest of, uh, of history. Uh, and also because they're, they're often pretty, pretty neglected. Uh, not all of them, there's quite a lot of people, say, trying to prevent nuclear war. But um, other things like, uh, you know, new hazards from biotechnology, there's relatively few people working on them. So something that I think it's useful to look into. Did you want to comment on that? Only a very short thing, which is that I have also heard an argument that um, even if you think that humans overall tend to be bad for other species, um, that things are improving. And so, you know, if humans manage to stick around, there's actually, you know, the potential to um, improve things quite a bit, um, potentially even, you know, one day dealing with wild animal suffering. So it could eventually in the long run be a net gain even for other species. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people asked about wild animal suffering. Do any of you want to talk about that? Oh, no, sorry. but just to answer your, your last question. I'm not... Um, <laughs> sorry I interrupted. There's a, there's yeah. a few people, um, you know, that I, I wouldn't mind being extinct, but um, <laughs> notwithstanding that... I'm sitting I, right I, here. <laughs> <laughs> not you. It was the yeah. Trump thing that brought that yeah, up. Okay. But, um, <laughs> but, the, um, but by and large, I'm anti, um, anti-extinction, so there we yeah. go. Excellent. It's a <laughs> happy world. Okay. Yeah, so wild animal suffering, anyone going to bite on that? Peter, you, you said what you want to say. Uh, I, I don't think it's an issue that we're uh, you know, even close to being ready to tackle, I have to say. Yeah. Um, you know, sure, if you, know, if, if you do have a cat and you see your cat that's caught a bird and is just playing with it and hasn't killed it, yes, stop your cat from playing with it. Um, but... Um, but, you know, do you want to get out there in uh, the areas of, of habitat that humans are basically not having any huge effect other than our greenhouse gas emissions, I suppose? But we're not, um, you know, do we want to try and, and stop the predators from slowly and painfully killing the prey? I, I don't think we're ready to do that. I don't think we'd know how to do that. And Send them to Scared Straight or something like that. <laughs> Which will make them more... It's very more, naughty. More yeah, callous predators, right? Yeah, make them catch more birds. Yeah. 
<laughs> scared vegetarian as a cat, yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, oh, I've got this one that I can answer. So uh, this person says, after three months, a person who wins the lottery is as happy as someone who becomes paraplegic. Does this hedonic treadmill suggest health interventions have minimal impact on well-being or welfare? Um, so I can answer that because I read that paper uh, earlier this year because um, we were doing a long analysis on income and happiness. And this is not true. <laughs> this is completely not true. <laughs> this is like really widely cited inaccurate thing. Um, basically, they only studied like nine people anyway. So it's like <laughs> negligible sample. And in any case, the people who won the lottery were significantly happier than the people who got paraplegia, shockingly. But um, this is like too good a story for the media to go and fact check. Anyway, so... Um, we've got a page. If you if you search for like eighty thousand hours income and happiness, we've got like thousands and thousands of words on this topic. Um, basically, it seems like when you're really poor, more money makes you happier. Probably um, as you become richer, it like becomes worth less. Like for most people here, more money isn't really going to make you happier. It's kind of a logarithmic relationship. So if you double your income, then an extra dollar becomes worth half as much. Um, but uh, and and I, another thing is, this person's asked about, uh, does that suggest that health interventions have minim, minimal impact? Uh, I mean, health uh, affects your welfare in, above and beyond its effect just on, on your income. So it does, like, if you're healthier, you can earn more. But being unhealthy, especially if you have um, inflammation, like you're infected uh, with, with a disease, then uh, it tends to make you uh, much more likely to get depression and be unhappy. Um, but I think there is an interesting question here. Um, Quite a lot of people give to Give Directly, which is a charity that uh, finds extremely poor people and then uh, raises their income. Uh, they, they give them about $1,000, which is something like the household income for a year or two. Um, and there is some evidence that that makes people feel happier, but um, it's, that, it's, not, it's, not, it's not completely clear, and the effect didn't seem to be really large. Uh, there's someone working on this at the Center for Effective Altruism looking at, um, yeah, if you, if you make people richer... like. Yeah, how, how strong is the experimental evidence that giving people cash, cash actually makes people um, more cheerful? Um, I think it probably does, but there's, there's some question marks there. Um, and I, I think if, if you, if you want to make people, like, yeah, if you want to make people much happier, potentially a better thing is to just focus on things that make them happy rather than uh, giving them more, giving them more money. So a lot of people have mental health problems, which are like devastating for people's health. Having depression is probably worse than being uh, very poor, and you can potentially target that directly. Um, I know some people involved in effective altruism who are working on apps to try to make people more cheerful. Uh, you know, things where they're like gratitude journaling and that kind of thing. And I think that's like a, a promising vein of research where you can go just directly to improving people's welfare without having to go through them earning more money. Um, on the other hand, uh, increasing economic growth is probably, probably lasts longer uh, than just making people happy at the moment. So if you can improve productivity in a country and build up the infrastructure that affects many future generations in a way that someone doing gratitude journaling doesn't, so it can get a bit tricky. Um, did anyone else want to comment on that? Well, just on the bit of... Um Unconditional cash transfers, there's also the issue of, well, if you give everybody unconditional cash transfers, then what happens? Um, there's these equilibrium effects of, well, it just changes them the market. And I don't think there's fantastic evidence yet really on that. Um, I mean, there were some experiments in the 70s in the U.S. that got a lot of press. I, but yeah. I watched a fantastic TED talk the other night, which uh, said that basically after studying this group of people um, over a period of about, 50 years um, and comparing in their lives that basically found that the quality of their relationships and their interpersonal relationships was the most important determinant in their happiness. Yeah. So I think if we're just going down a path about economics, um, we're probably 
not hitting the mark. In no, fact, the... Oh, sorry, no, go ahead. Well, the monetary transfers could, in some cases, actually uh, make some of those interpersonal relationships deteriorate a bit, right? <laughs> I mean, you've got the Rottenkin theorem of, you know, somebody gets a windfall and everybody comes running to you for money. So, mm. but anyway. You're talking about the relationships outside the family, but they might actually improve the relationships inside the family. You don't have to worry so much about, you know, every cent that's spent. But I was just going to say about Give Directly, I think you have to give this organisation credit because they're an extremely transparent organisation. Um, they're one of the relatively small number of organisations that will tell you that they're doing a randomised trial of something before the trial is actually done. So if the results come in badly for them, they can't forget that they ever did such a trial. Um, they, ha they, they have to post the results. So I think they're quite brave in that, and I think that's something that other organisations ought to follow. And my reading of it, I, I'm not familiar perhaps with the research, yeah. my re reading of it is that it has come out positively, at least mm. to this point. Yeah, so it comes out positively on almost every outcome measure except maybe whether the people say that they're happier um, at that moment. But the sample isn't so, so big. I think like this is just a tentative result, but it seems like it's affecting other things maybe more than people's immediate, like, than whether they report that they're feeling happy. Like reduces their stress, say, but then, uh, yeah. That may raise, like, th raise a question about the value of people's self-reporting of happiness, yeah. which there have been other questions raised about that as well. Yeah. Uh, it would it would definitely surprise me if taking someone who's living on a dollar a day and raising their income to two or three dollars a day didn't improve their happiness. That would be very counterintuitive, but this, the universe is full of counterintuitive things. Um, so someone says, evidence-based evaluation is absolutely vital, but how uh, do we avoid the risk of becoming too conservative and supporting established pr proven programs rather than more adventurous things? I can tackle that one if no one else wants to. Right, yeah, so... <laughs> Excellent. More time for me to talk. Um, so effective altruism, yeah, has become very associated in the, in the media and in, in the public consciousness with just doing things that have already been, already been proven to work. And I think that that is um, questionable branding on our part. Um, I think for, for many people who are, who are very talented and have the ability to really try to do new things, it's probably that they can probably have more social impact by doing research and being innovative and testing new programs. Um, and while it's, once you have a success, it's very important to scale it up so that you actually make full use of that research. Um, I think we definitely don't want to get stuck in just doing the same things forever. Uh, we need to be, yeah, trying to find things that are much, like, rigorously testing to try to find things that are better than what we were doing before. And especially, you know, I, I um, within the organization, we try to specialize in different kinds of cause areas because there's so much to learn. Uh, and I tend to focus on these existential risks and threats to you know, civilization as a whole. Um, and with that stuff, clearly it's almost always going to be really adventurous. There's uh, no RCT on how do you reduce the risk of nuclear war. Um, so, I, yeah, because I, I think that's a very important cause area, I think people should not be afraid to do new difficult things that have a high risk of failure. I think they should be willing to take, take risks. I think um, I, I agree with you that you know, effective altruism has a clear place in what I would almost call a scale-up of, um, you know, um, of ideas that have been tested. And there is, a, you know, a separate but related place around and a lot of people who are quite engaged in actually supporting innovation and actually, um, you know, people, you know, it's like the investment market. Some people want to have a, a low-risk, um, you know, but low-reward sort of expected um, return and some people want to have a high-risk and high return, you know, and that's what innovation gets you. Some of those things will fail and some will succeed and do spect make spectacular changes and I think there's a place for both um, um, both opportunities. Um, 
where, where I do think there's a little bit of thought still to, to happen is this whole issue of sustainability. So I'm not sure yet that anyone really has nailed this issue of, you know, a, a, an intervention that needs to be delivered every year, let's say a bed net that needs to be, you know, delivered every year or two years, um, and, and an organisation that just delivers that, you know, bed net every year or two years versus one that perhaps um, creates sustainable social enterprises that will generate bed nets forever. And I, I don't... The reason I say I don't think they've nailed that is because I don't um, actually think... Um, there's been a consistent way of measuring the impact of those two different things. So I, I think where I'd like to see some more progress is actually looking at whether a change is sustainable versus a change that needs to be delivered every every year or every few, few years. Sure. So there were a couple of questions about diversity. Um, someone pointed out that everyone on the panel is white. Um, it's like... A lot of you know middle class, upper middle class people here, uh, and unfortunately that that tends to be the case uh, in most of the organisations I've worked in. Um, does this like mean that we don't have a sufficient diversity of perspectives that we're potentially going to get blinkered to things that are really important because we all come from the same, all cut from the same cloth? What do you? Anyone want to bite on that? It's easy, easy, easy well, question. I'll, I'll nibble on it. Okay. Um, so I mean, if for example we're interested in global poverty, then. You know, it's clear that we're not going to have people in an audience in Melbourne who are in extreme poverty. I mean, if, if, they're, if they're in Australia, they're getting a level of social security that puts them above the extreme poverty level. I'm not denying that there are people in poverty in, in Melbourne, but it's relative poverty for Australian society. So, so you know, in a way, I, I don't think it would be terribly relevant if we had uh, a sort of an Australian African, if you like, someone of African descent who was uh, living in Melbourne, you know, earning whatever people in Melbourne typically earn and was part of our group. I mean, yes, you know, we might get some different perspectives, but um, I don't think we should be too anguished about the fact that the movement is um, largely white and middle class. Um, you know, that that will, that will may change. Um, hopefully it will change eventually. But I, I, I don't think we need to feel that we have to have a kind of quota of various different ethnic cultural groups uh, in, the, in the community. Mm. And, and I think as long as the... I mean, the priority for me would be ensuring that the, the innovations and ideas and the change is being um, driven with the inclusion and participation of the people who are most directly affected by it. Um, you know, some of the most innovative um, charities right now are, um, are very much what I would call southern NGOs. Um, you know, you take a, an organisation like BRAC um, based in Bangladesh and they're doing extraordinary things. So, um, you know, I, I think as, as long as those sorts of um, organisations are in the mix and ones that can be supported by, um, you know, um, the the um, the support and charity from, from, from people here, I think that's a fantastic outcome. All right, we had a bunch of questions about climate change and saving the environment and where that ranks. Uh, do you want to comment on that, Peter? Or, uh, um, so I think climate change, you know, in terms of your criteria, Rob, is certainly a huge issue. Um, it's not a neglected issue. There's a lot of people working on it and there's a reasonable amount of, of money going into it. Um, I think, the, uh, and the other question is to what extent is it a solvable issue? Um, Obviously, I really hope it's a sol solvable issue, and um, I think that we ought to be working on it as active and concerned citizens. Um, 
and I hope that all of you considered climate change in casting your vote in the recent elections, for example. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think there are things we can do about it. But in terms of am I going to make this the cause into which I put most of my energy and uh, the amount of money that I donate to uh, NGOs and so on, um, I'm not doing that at present because um, I'm not convinced that I'm going to be able to have enough impact. Um, I, you know, if somebody could show me strategies that are, you know, and I have given some support to 350.org and other organisations like that, certainly to the Australian Greens, um, but um, I'd, I'd need to have, for me, I'd need to have a clearer strategy of where I'm going to have an impact on the global problem, because it is a global problem, obviously. Mm, yeah. No? Okay. I agree with everything you said. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, at 80,000 hours, I think we broadly agree with that. Um, we think it's a, a, a pressing problem, but maybe not among the, the very most pressing problems. Um, and mainly because about $100 billion is spent on it already, so it's not, not very neglected uh, in the scheme of things. Uh, that said, it's a very, uh, it's a very you know, the, the scale is very large because it could, you know, if you had runaway climate change, it could potentially kill a large fraction of all people. So, uh, it's so, a big deal. so actually, since 80,000 Hours is, is advising people going into ethical careers, mm. if you had somebody who was talented at political organisation and activism and mm. so on, would you see that as a reasonable option for them? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you, you, do you mean for climate change specifically? Yeah, well, oh, right. yes, yeah. that's, yes. Thinking, thinking about going into that area in the hope that you can make an impact there. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty good strategy. Like, yeah, we talk about matching up your skills with uh, the cause that you're working on with the approach that you're taking. I think advocacy and policy and politics is one that's very well matched to working on climate change. The government can potentially have a large impact on that. Um, yeah, and in, in general, we think if, if you're someone who's you know, likely to be able to get into parliament, that that's probably among the most valuable things that you could do because the amount of money that the government spends per politician is very large. And you, know, you, you do the math and think about you know, if you become a minister, how much, what kind of budget can you control and how much? It just looks like very large numbers in the tens of millions or hundreds of millions uh, Yeah, and expectations. So. Just on that investment area you were talking about before, I mean, I think with China making substantial investments in this whole space, you know, um, in terms of um, environmentally friendly energy and so on, I think that's a real opportunity um, that will see change. And once China moves, that's going to have a massive impact. And this is probably my question, if I may, for Peter. Um, I understand, I think last week, um, the Chinese government announced um, a goal to halve meat consumption. And I just wonder whether you think that's likely to be successful and have any impact um, on, on animal welfare and production? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm certainly hopeful. I thought that was the most hopeful sign to come out of China in respect of meat because, you know, if, if you look at the statistics on, on meat consumption, um, per capita meat consumption, Actually, the United States has start, has has dipped now in the last since about 2010. I mean, the the graph goes steadily up for the whole of the 20th century, and uh, up to about 2010. And now it's just started to curve down, which I think is a really hopeful sign. If you look at the uh, graph for China, um, it's you know one of those hockey stick curves. It's um, it's it's going not straight up, but it's going up very steeply, um, and it was hard to see much actually changing this, but uh, the government did announce these policies of, of how much meat it wanted people to eat, uh, thought that there should be a cap on it, and as you say, it, it was pretty close to halving it. Now, um, are they actually going to put the effort into it to make that stick, to make it work? Well, 
guess the government in China can do something like that more easily, perhaps, than uh, governments in uh, some other countries. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but will it? I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm, re- I'm you know, moderately hopeful, but I'm waiting to see, I guess you'd say. Yeah. All right. Uh, we'll probably give it a, a couple more minutes because we started a bit late. But are there any questions that you wanted to ask one another? So I have a question actually for Kirsten, which I hope is not too unfair, but um, you were talking about difficulties of assessing, measuring things, and you were talking about um, the various things that Fred Hollows does. Um, those of you who have seen Fred Hollows advertising will know that it has this saying, this little slogan, you can prevent blindness for $25, right? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely interested because Fred Hollows is one of the organisations that's recommended by The Life You Can Save. Um, I'm genuinely interested if you think that's a defensible claim. Yeah, I genuinely do. <laughs> um, look, um, there's a, a number of um, countries that we work in where it uh, literally does cost $25 to do a cataract surgery that restores sight. And so, I mean, when I talked earlier tonight about those IOL factories... Um, the, that create the lenses that go into somebody's eyes. Um, the reason for investing in those factories was because at that time the cost of a lens to go into somebody's eyes was around about $150. Um, and so this was sort of like a catalytic invest investment to sort of change the market. So those um, sort of large manuf- manufacturing plants, and we weren't the only ones. There were a number of um, built in India at the same time as well, and it brought the cost of those lenses down to around about $5, so from $150 down to about $5. And so those sort of catalytic cal- catalytic investments can really change the marketplace and 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 that was the sort of thing that was instrumental in actually bringing out to bring the cost of surgery down so so dramatically any other questions all right there was a there was one for me about uh passion um someone was saying well you know you do all this analysis and then what if you find out the most important problem to work on is one that you just don't don't care about uh, personally um and like that, that could happen. Uh, <laughs> um, I think at 80,000 hours, our view is that you have, you, you more or less have to be passionate, or you have to be interested in what you're working on in order to have a good chance of succeeding, especially if you're doing something innovative. It's very rare to find someone who, you know, started a business and it took off and they, they weren't really interested or passionate about it in some form. But we also think it's possible to become passionate about much more than, than you're already passionate about or what you're thinking about. We have uh, like a really long investigation about what creates job satisfaction, like what, what makes people passionate about things. And basically, they have to think that they're um, making a valuable contribution. So if you start working on a problem, maybe that you're not initially interested in, but then you feel like it's significant, that it's actually affecting people in a big way, and you feel like you're doing a good job at, at making a difference to it, in general, people do become passionate about uh, that over time. So it's true that you do need to be uh, passionate, but that's more of an outcome of doing valuable work on an important issue than like something that necessarily drives you into it in the first place. Um, anyway, I'm doing a workshop, a four-hour workshop uh, this weekend. If you want to come to EA Global X, uh, talking about all kinds of different things, like what creates job satisfaction, uh, more more things about problem selection and how you can do the how you can do the most good. So if you come to the full conference, you can listen to me for another four hours talk about these things. So. <laughs> Yeah. Anyone, anyone else want to make some final remarks? No? Want to big up their own presentations this weekend? <laughs> it's going to be a blast. Well, just, um, I mean, I, I'll endorse your plug. I think there is still space at the conference if people want to come. And I, 
I know not everybody here is registered for it, so um, if you're interested, I'm going to be speaking as well tomorrow, so uh, again, on uh, a couple of different things. So I think it's going to be a great event. And thanks very much for coming tonight, too.